This is SAFM. Yay. And this is the Enviro Show on SAFM. Nice to have you with us. With you through until 10 o'clock, I'm Nancy Richards, and we have uh, Kim Winter and Des Capers on the other side of the glass. Well, what we're going to be talking about tonight, uh, we're going to be chatting to extreme athlete David Greer. You might remember, amongst other things, he has run the entire length of Madagascar. How's that? Also, the Great Wall of China. But in fact, he's going to be talking tonight about his Ajuga project, looking at fire-retardant plant materials for shack building. We'll also be crossing to Bangkok to hear about the discussions at the CITES conference of the parties around the declining rhino and elephant populations. Elephants dropped by 62% in the last decade in Central Africa. <gasps> OMG. Indeed. Then in our green goodie slot, a neat little uh, 3D rhino jigsaw puzzle is getting the message across the schools, right across the country, I think. And before that, we'll also be getting some feedback from the urban farming in Bizo that happened in Cape Town earlier this week at a venue called Heaven. How nice is that? Also be checking in on uh, what's going on in Delft, but where they're going to be having a bit of a tree planting outside uh, a primary school, Sunray Primary School. So that's what we've got lined up. Stay with us. This is SAFM. The Enviro Show it is here on SAFM and don't forget that if you would like to be in touch right here in the next hour, you can do that too. You can pop us a message on Facebook. It's The Enviro Show on SAFM, The Enviro Show on SAFM or pick up the phone 0892102010. Well, first up, if you were listening last week and I hope you were, you might remember that we spoke to Mike Raimondo. He's a very clever founder of Green Renaissance, and we were talking about his urban farming event held earlier this week in Cape Town at a venue called Heaven, which actually turned out to be the very accessible Central Methodist Church just off Green Market Square in Cape Town. Lovely place. As I say, very accessible. And this is just a little of what we heard about farming worms, mushrooms, beekeeping, and chickens. So worm tea is a couple of handfuls, you can look it up online as well, but a couple of handfuls of worm castings in water with a little bit of sugar or molasses, and you kind of want to aerate it or stir it. And after 48 hours, you just have this massive bloom of good bacteria that can really kill like scale insects. It's pretty miraculous. You can almost see the, the flowers blooming. Or I've been growing my own mushrooms out of my back garden, shiitake mushroom, for the last, probably the last six years now. And it started by me first finding wild mushrooms in the forest, then having a heart attack, and doing a bit of research into which kind of foods I should be eating to bring down my cholesterol rate. And I found out that Chinese mushrooms like shiitakes and oyster mushrooms bring down your cholesterol. So I started reading up on a guy which I brought the bookshare by Paul Stamets. He's a revolutionary when it comes to cultivating mushrooms. And I started growing my own shiitakes by obtaining a spawn, which is the seed in a sense, from Belgium and growing the spawn onto small wooden dowels, which I then inoculate into a log like this one over here. We live in Newlands, we have a tiny little garden, and we have tucked away in the corner of our garden a beehive. So our new foraging bees were out doing their orientation dance. Besides that hive in Newlands, we have seven other hives, all in the southern suburbs, all in gardens, 
And so this is very much a talk about urban beekeeping. Beekeeping is done in cities around the world, and Cape Town in that respect is, I think it's, it's starting to happen now. And we're definitely starting to do more of it in the southern suburbs. Chickens really close the loop quite nicely. We've been talking about worms, what do you do with them? We've been talking about growing green leaves and all the rest of it. What chickens do really, really well is give you an egg, if it's a good laying hen, I'll give you an egg every day in the first year of her laying life. So most of the eggs that you buy in the shop, I don't know how well versed you are on these things, but if you're not buying a free range chicken egg, these things are raised in cages literally that size. They spend their entire life in a cage that size in a shed with thousands of other chickens and they fed food, they never see the sun, they never get a chance to put their feet on the ground. So to me, chickens are the absolute perfect urban animal. They were designed for urban gardens. They docile, they're not noisy. Well, the rooster is, but you don't need a rooster to get eggs. The rooster's just there to produce chicks. We're not interested in doing that. We're interested in producing really good, wholesome eggs from nutrients which have been grown on your property, which you can recycle back through the chickens. Virtually everything that you eat, chickens will eat as well. There's a couple of no-nos. They say you shouldn't give them uh, avocado pears and green potatoes. Well, I've never eaten green potatoes. But pretty much anything else, if you put it in their coop and you leave them for a couple of days, if they haven't taken it, they're probably never going to take it. They're great recyclers of nutrients. And somebody asked a question earlier about what do you do with worms? Well, the best thing to do with worms is to give them to chickens because they're loaded with protein. And for a girl like that to produce an egg a day, they need loads of protein. Well, there you go. Lots and lots of, learn of learning to be done there in heaven in Cape Town and uh, all about urban farming. And the speakers there were Joe Hunter-Adams on worm composting, Gary Goldman on growing mushrooms, Murray Lane Dacostace on beekeeping, and Richard Davies on raising chickens and uh, how much they like worms. But also there in heaven was Stephen Lamb. Now, Stephen Lamb is the creator of the Green Shack, which was set up outside the design, design in Darba last week. And he also spoke about vegetable farming in small urban in-between spaces, like in, for instance, in milk crates set inside the outer railing of the Methodist Church. So it was a really, really informative evening. But I took the opportunity to ask Stephen what the future of his green shack was. It's going to go to the Wester head offices in Cape Town. So it's got a long-term home, which we're thrilled about. It's going to be an environmental education centre for youth and outreach. It's going to be teaching a couple of things around food security, renewable energies, recycling, upcycling, the language is low-tech, functional, purposeful stuff. In terms of the bigger picture of the Green Shack, what we're hoping to do is to affect policy. We want government and specifically local government to look at alternative, low-tech, duplicatable and simple ways of building temporary structure differently through harnessing the gifts that we get from Mother Nature for free. We're specifically looking at addressing issues of food, fire and flooding. Calling the triple F's, food, fire, flooding, to address the space of temporary where people are waiting for formal housing. We believe that uh, we can build temporary structures differently uh, in a way that addresses nutrition, safety, stopping families and possessions being burnt, um, loss of human life through shack fires, of groundwater flooding, of getting healthy food into people's stomachs in the space of waiting. We want people to start living. We were thrilled to be able to meet with the Premier Helen Ziller this morning at 8 and after that the Mayor Patricia DeLille and then at the same time a delegation of just under 40 mayors from around the Western Cape. 
who were at the ICC um, as part of a, a conference. The response that we got from the Premier was overwhelming, was supporting. I think she does get it. And I think there is political patronage in the concept of doing something now. And unfortunately, there are millions of South Africans who will not see the inside of a formal house tomorrow. And uh, we believe that the Green Shack offers some suggestions of how to do that. Um, we certainly don't want to promote shacks as a form of accommodation. No one deserves to live in a shack, but while people are, at least they can be safe, they can be warm, and they can be eating healthy, nutritious food that keeps their family healthy, safe and warm. Well, there you go. That's the philosophy of Stephen Lamb. And if you'd like to find out a little bit more about what he does, it's uh, touchingtheearthlightly.com. Touchingtheearthlightly.com is his website. And if you'd like to know when there's going to be another urban farming inspiration workshop, check the Green Renaissance site. It's uh, greenrenaissance.co.za down here in Cape Town. But who knows? They might well come to your area one day soon. Greenrenaissance.co.za. You're listening to the Enviro Show here on SAFM, and you heard there what Stephen Lamb had to say about creating shacks that, while there may be temporary living arrangements, they can at least be safe and dry. Well, also thinking along those lines has been extreme athlete David Greer, well known for his sippler Miles for Smiles, runs around the coast of South Africa, across the Great Wall of China, the length of Madagascar, and as if it's, if it's worth running, he's done it. But his inspiration for fire-retardant building plant materials for shacks has actually come from a plant that's indigenous to three continents, I think Africa, Europe, and North America, and we have him on the line. Tell us all about it. Hi, David. Hi, good evening to you. How are you? Very well. Nice to be chatting to you about something rather different from running and cooking, yes. which are your two usual things. Tell us a little bit about your your idea here. It's the ajuga plant, I, th I think that's right. How have you come across it and tell us more about it? Well, um, the, the ajuga plant was sort of the, the inspiration for the, the name of, of this project that we, we've embarked on. And when sort of old fires burn and they burn up to this little succulent ground cover called uh, the juga and uh, this sort of a red f uh, fire that's a, a fire resistant uh, plant but uh, the the structure that we've developed is a roughly a six, just under 16 square meter um, little dwelling mm. and um, it's made from fire retardant materials and and we've had it tested it it burns for 14 minutes temperatures of 1,200 degrees, and uh, it withstands the fire. And on the 27th of this month, we, we actually launched it here in the Western Cape to the fire department and the media, where we, we set a massive fire inside this unit, and, and uh, we put it to its test. This thing burned for 40 minutes, and, uh, you know, after 40 minutes, uh, the, the guests walked up to this little 40-millimeter uh, thick wall that was burning up to probably close to 1,500 degrees on the inside, and they could lean against it with their hand on it, on the outside. Sure. So um, I also feel that, that this is going to revolutionize life in informal settlements. And what we're trying to do through the Sipla Foundation is deploy these units as, as creches because there are so many kids that are, are left in the hands of, of the, the teachers at creches during the day while their folks are at work. And... You know, if, if anyone sees a wisp of fire coming out of an informal settlement or hears in the news, the panic breaks out in the workforce mm. and how are their children. So we, we're trying to help by letting the parents know when they go to work that their children are in a, a little unit of uh, where they're going to be safe from, yeah. from the raging fires that 
plague these informal settlements. Yeah, absolutely. And how many, you know, each and every season we see endless fires and it's really, really scary stuff because they spread so drastically. Yeah. The ajuga plant, you say that it's a sort of little moist ground cover. How was it discovered? Did you discover it? How did you come across it? Well, um, we actually don't use the plant itself okay. in, in, in the unit. It was just the inspiration for, for the name of the oh, unit. Oh, I'm with you. And it, yeah, it came from, from the communities. But the unit itself is made from recyclable materials. It's got a, an outer plastic skin with fire retardants. And it's made from between 20 and 25% recycled PG plastic. The inner wall is a vermiculite compound, which is totally uh, recyclable. And then the, the thin little 5 mil inner skin, uh, we use chromodet. So this whole unit is, is recyclable itself and made from materials that, that uh, come from a recycled, re recycled source. Mm. So, you know, the, the, the unit is, 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 it's a green unit in its own way, but yeah. it, it has two ways that, that we arrest and protect uh, from fire. And the first is, from the outside, if a fire breaks out in a, maybe an informal structure next to this unit, it can burn up against that wall and the inhabitants of this unit are safe up to 40 mm. minutes inside this unit. I mean, mm. it can be longer, but we, we're saying 40 minutes. And um, we have a little geo tag in the unit, so if there are kids in the day that are in a crash and they run into this, this unit for safety, the fire brigade will know exactly where the unit is. And secondly, if a fire breaks out within the unit, I mean 90% of all fires start in a unit and they spread from that unit. So what happens with this unit is you close the windows and the door, within 15 minutes you will suffocate that fire. It won't spread. Secondly, if the fire is a huge raging fire within that unit and um, you can't close the door or the windows, the unit will, will retain its structural integrity. It will not collapse. It will not break. And the fire will not spread out of that unit. It will still be contained within the walls. And the roof has a little sector that pops and lets the gases and smoke and flame out. But it will, it will trap the fire within the unit. So it cannot spread to surrounding units. So those are the three things that this, this unit does, and, and, and we honestly feel that this can you know, really change the, the face of life in informal settlements. Yes, and I'm sure it's got application way beyond this, but you know, as soon as you say plastic, all I can imagine is something dripping and melting. Does it, the plastic component, does it not simply melt? No, what we, the reason why we've used plastic on the outside is plastic is, is the worst conductor of heat. Mm. And uh, it's, it's a two millimeter plastic skin, just as an outer protective layer for the inner core. So what happens if a fire burns up against this plastic skin, and with the fire retardants, it'll just smolder and smoke, and the, the, the fire just dies. The, the plastic itself doesn't catch a light, and and the plastic sure it, it, it will it will it'll bubble and pop and stuff like that. But the plastic doesn't burn; it just smokes a bit, and then uh, as the heat reduces, so the 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 fire dies there with the fire retardants that are, that are in the plastic. It sounds also as if it has potential for, I might be wrong here, job creation. I mean, the compilation of the actual, how does it come? In sort of in panels, in, as it were, flat bricks or whole sides? What does yeah. it look like? It, it, the unit comes in a kit form. So, so with your um, relating to job creation, we, we're setting up... Um, two factories in the Atlantis area, 
the one will make the board, the second factory will make the kits. So the unit arrives in a kit form in an informal settlement and we will train up squads in the settlements to erect these units in the communities. Because you know how the roads and that are in these formal settlements, you can't truck a unit in and just deliver it. Mm. So these units are dropped off and then the panels and um, the floor sector are carried in and it's, it's four guys can assemble this unit in, in basically just under a day and, and the whole structure is riveted together. And it, it stands on, on, a, on a steel um, platform about uh, 200 off the ground so there's rain and water running underneath the, the, the the unit is, is, is up off the ground. Uh, you, you won't have the problem with flooding and water and all of that. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. And as well, with these creches, the women that get the creches, it also is the enterprise development. gives the women an opportunity to start a little business with a creche and, you know, the children pay a small fee. Yeah. Part of the David, I don't know if you heard Stephen Lamb talking earlier there, but one of the points he makes, and I'm sure that you're right behind this, is that one doesn't want to be making too much of shacks because one doesn't want shacks to be the way people are going to be living, you know, some way down the line. Hopefully we will see the last shack dismantled forever. So I suppose it's a sort of a temporary thing. But one of the things you mentioned was that the materials are re recyclable, or recycled? I mean, are they materials that can be recycled, or, or is this a way of using recycled materials? Yeah, in, in both ways, it, it is partly from recycled material, and the whole unit itself can be recycled. So, um, you know, in, in both aspects there, if, for instance, um, the, 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 the unit has to be moved, it can either be taken apart and um, reassembled, or if it gets damaged or whatever, the, the, the unit can be ground up and, and, and recycled. So the steel frame can be recycled, the, the panels, the plastic, everything can be can be recycled. And from what I understand, I think the whole structure, the whole kit, is, costs about 50,000 rand. I suppose what you're going to have to do here is get um, municipalities interested, you're going to have to get city councils interested. Do you, are they going to buy it? There are a couple of ways we're looking at. The one is through corporate CSI investment to sponsor units into areas. The other is, you know, the banks, we feel with a unit like this, you can offer a person basic insurance for against fire and theft and that because these things are incredibly secure. And I think there's even an opportunity for banks to look at a version of a really low-cost housing loan where people can actually purchase these. And instead of paying a fee for being a, a backyard dweller in a, in a little shack, he can actually purchase one of these and, and pay it off at half the price yeah. he'd, be, he'd be renting. So there, there, there's a financial model for, for banks to get involved in this as well. Yeah. But, you know, it's something we have to explore. It's just... Uh, well, it sounds like you've done quite a lot of exploring already. David, just before we let you go, I have to ask you this. I mean, as somebody who has run you know, all over the place, there's the coastline, the smile of South Africa, you've run the length of Madagascar, you've run across the Great Wall of China. I would imagine environmental matters is something that will be in front of your eyes all the time doing that sort of thing. Do you feel quite um, hopeful about the future or has have those sort of uh, expeditions brought the environment and all the issues very close to your heart? You know, it, it has. In my last run, I just ran from from the Afghanistan border down to the south of India, a 4,000k journey last year. And this is where I saw real reality of, of life thrown at you. And, uh, you know, you mentioned 
hopefully one day, you know, no one will live in, in informal settlements and that, but unfortunately the reality is it's going to be around for a long time. Yeah. And we have to find viable solutions for this and safe solutions. And, and, and it's been a huge, in the back of my mind, looking at this and, and, and trying to find some sort of solution because, you know, one person is not going to find the solution. It's like the, the previous uh, uh, gentleman on the radio as well. It's a combination of these solutions that will help the, the greater problem, but it's, it's going to be around a long time. And we've got to be innovative, and we have to take the environment into concern, and most importantly, you know, humanity. And, and it's, our, it's our fundamental duty to provide our youth. Yeah. It's a God-given right to a, a safe place to live, a safe place to be schooled. And you know, we, 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 we've got to look after that foundation as well through this. So it's, it's complex, but... Uh, Solution in the pocket. Yeah, well, I guess if we if everybody does their bit, and what people could do is do their bit by finding out a little bit more. Have you got has the Ajuga project got a website or any? Yes, it, it, it has. It's um, www.ajuga.co.za. Okay. And we, I'm actually busy on my my next run is is called Ignite Hope because I want to ignite hope through these communities globally around this project. So I'm setting out with a couple of other adventurers and. And we're going on a global new journey to ignite hope, you know, taking fire but turning it into a positive and actually igniting hope instead of igniting fear. So that's what we want to do now and just, you know, get, get this project out. Yeah. Well, David, you don't stop, do you? <laughs> Bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful journey and may, uh, may that one, the ignition of hope, may it go really, really well. Thank you very much. Thanks I for really sharing. appreciate it. Thank Alrighty. you. Take Thanks. care. David Greer there, my apologies for the quality of the line. It was a landline, but just one of those things. Um, but interesting to hear what he had to say. And if you'd like to find out a little bit more about the Ajuga project, it's uh, Ajuga, that's A-G-U-G-A dot C-O dot Z-A, Ajuga dot C-O dot Z-A. And watch out for what he's up to with the Ignite of Hope uh, campaign that's up next. <gasps> O-M-G. This is SAFM. Well, OMG, indeed. Well, next in the last 10 years, and how OMG is this, in the last 10 years, the elephant population of Central Africa has been wiped out by 62%, which represents a lot of tuskers. Well, this statistic was released just a few days ago at the CITES conference in Bangkok, where member states have gathered together, and where earlier we tracked down a World Wildlife Fund trade campaign leader, Elizabeth McClellan. She's usually based in Switzerland, but we got her in Bangkok, and I asked her first to outline what's going on at the conference. The CITES conference of the parties uh, that we're at at the moment is the 16th meeting um, of the, the CITES convention. That's the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of wild flora and fauna. This is a, an opportunity for the now 178 member states to get together every two to three years, usually three years, and discuss matters of uh, international trade of endangered species of plants and animals. The purpose of the convention is to sh ensure that trade does not threaten the survival of any species of plants and animals in trade internationally. So every three years, the member states get together. There's a system of listing species on different appendices, which then restricts 
their trade to varying degrees, and they also take uh, various resolutions and decisions about trade overall or these particular species on a case-by-case basis. It almost feels like there may be a contradiction in terms. I mean, the very fact of trading plants and animals almost indicates that it's not going to be successful for the plants and animals. Can you give us any indication of uh, areas where it is successful? There's many notable successes. One of the, uh, probably the the most well-quoted success is that of Siamese crocodiles, who were heavily harvested in the wild before there was any regulation of their trade to the possibility that the species was was seriously endangered by the trade. Uh, Regulating the trade through the farming of crocodiles has meant that uh, the species in the wild is now much safer because most of the demand for the species is satisfied from the farmed animals. This species is lucky because, in fact, a Siamese crocodile farmed ends up uh, having skin in better condition than those in the wild. So it's actually preferable to get your animals from farm conditions. And so that has really completely destroyed the demand for for the wild populations of animals. Hmm. Where different factors in the demand are in play, for example, people have the belief that wild animals are somehow better, that system may not work as well. But in the case of, of Siamese crocodiles, it has been a real success story for the species. Yes, it, interesting you say that where people believe that an animal from the wild is more uh, it's more appropriate and rather like the collection of plants very often, I think it's believed that if they've come from the wild, they're more potent than if they're farmed. I suppose that leads us right into rhinos, which I know is something, or the rhino trade, which I know is part of, uh, part of your agenda. The issue of farming rhinos, is that something that's come up at the, con- at the convention? Uh, I actually have just stepped out of an event um, that the South African government is hosting uh, at the moment to do this interview. And, um, I, in fact, Mr. Pelham Jones was just uh, speaking as I left, and he was giving an overview of the, the private sector in South Africa and uh, the number of rhinos uh, that the private sector holds and, and the benefits to the country and the the issues that, that South Africa is facing at the moment with, um, with rhinos. So rhinos have not come up on the agenda so far uh, in the COP, but we are anticipating them coming up on uh, either tomorrow or Monday. And, of course, it is a very uh, hot topic, as everybody is, is extremely worried by the rhino poaching crisis. Yes. Um, and so, of course, there's, there's all sorts of options uh, on the table that people are considering and discussing. Can you give us an indication of what some of those are? So obviously uh, there's the, um, the question of adequate enforcement and more enforcement and how much enforcement can any country possibly do. There's, there's obviously the issue of, of rangers who are in dangerous positions uh, defending the lives of rhinos. That's been mentioned several times at this, um, this conference of the parties. And then there's obviously the issue of better legal system and adequate deterrence to, the, to the, the crimes that involve rhinos. There's definitely the issue of addressing demand and enforcement in consumer countries. And uh, there was an event uh, this afternoon describing uh, the role of, of Vietnam in the trade by external parties. So that's obviously something that's come up is how do we address the demand? 
the South African government uh, at this event, I believe, is explaining uh, the potential implications of illegal rhino horn trade. Of course, the private sector in South Africa is already engaged in uh, trophy hunting, which is another option to, um, to provide incentives for, for private landowners to keep rhinos. So these options are all under discussion. What is indisputable is that there needs to be good protection at the, um, the source end. There needs to be good enforcement and demand reduction at the consumer end. And there needs to be a great deal of international collaboration across continents to be able to share information, share intelligence, and, uh, and combat what has become a, a transnational organized crime. Yes, very difficult to get to the the grassroots of you know where the, the the poaching is actually happening and how it's happening, and the market to, to which it's going. You know, rhinos have had a lot of uh, a lot of coverage. There's been a lot of press and a lot of discussion. But one of the things that I think has come out of the uh, out of the conference is the threat to animal uh, to elephants, and I think something like sixty two percent decline in the last ten years in Central Africa. That seems astonishingly high. It is, it is frightening. Uh, one of the heartening things to WWF is the, um, the unified sense of urgency at this, um, at this COP amongst parties, and that is range states, consumer countries, um, other, you know, other concerned countries from around the world. Uh, everybody acknowledges, is seeming to acknowledge that there's a crisis, uh, you know, affecting uh, African elephants at the moment. As you said, 62% decline in the last decade or so in Central Africa is just showing us that, that we, you know, we have a lot to lose in Central Africa. But the, um, the, the data that, was, that were presented today on illegal killing across the continent showed that we really have no room to be complacent across any of Africa. In West Africa, there's only small populations left. Uh, so they really don't take much to, to make them disappear. East Africa is starting to be hit by increasing levels of poaching. And even in secure populations, what we thought were secure populations in southern Africa, uh, there are, you know, poaching incidences being recorded. So there's, there's a great sense of urgency at this COP to deal with the issue. Um, and there's also a, um, a sense that we need uh, more accountability uh, of parties. Uh, there's uh, several parties have mentioned we, we need to move beyond reporting and we certainly need to move into action. But again, there's a complete recognition that no one country can do it uh, by themselves. But it's, it's a global concern. It takes global effort. And it is especially relevant now that the crime is, again, transnational, organized, involving criminal syndicates, outmanning and outgunning um, the, the resources that the source countries can put towards the problem. One can only imagine that it's the high demand for ivory, which, you know, as I say, seems to have been slightly eclipsed by the demand for rhino horn. Is still a huge demand for ivory? Obviously, is that, is that where we're losing our elephants to? There is a huge demand for ivory. The, uh, Why? The, I mean, it's not, uh, it's, not markets, the, it's not the sort of medicinal purpose. No, I was going to say it's not medis for medicinal or health reasons uh, like rhino horn. No. Uh, it, it appears to be, um, I, I mean, it's as luxury. It's a luxury good. And it, there's, there's a tradition and a culture of absolutely intricate 
carving of, of ivory in, in the, um, the East, especially in the Far East in China. And uh, it certainly is seen as a, as a luxury good, uh, in some places a, as a status symbol, um, a very worthwhile gift to give, uh, a good thing to have in your house. Sometimes it's carved into uh, religious or traditional figurines, and then, of course, it's, uh, you know, it bestows more than just an actual piece of ivory. It, it bestows all the values of that, that particular figurine. So as, as a luxury ornament and a luxury good, it, 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 is, it is very popular, and, and therefore the demand is high. The, the reports that were presented today give uh, a striking correlation uh, between, between the, uh, the levels of poaching increasing and the amount of consumer spending in countries like China. And it seems that you know, increasing wealth um, is playing a part in more people being able to afford it, more people, people wanting it, and therefore the demand going up. Bad news for the elephants that the demand is going up. What are we to do about this crisis in elephants, which seems to be continent-wide? I mean, is there, could one even consider farming elephants? Well, no, I don't think so. I, I mean, I, I, the, the practical solution is to protect them at the source. And uh, again, you know, it, it requires resources and tactics that we have not really been used to in the conservation movement. The, the, the actions that we are having to consider now are more akin to what people who, uh, who deal with narcotics and, and arms and a counterfeiting of money, you know, serious organized. We have to learn from sectors like that. Uh, as to how to deal with, with organized crime. But it does come down to the basics of protecting the animals where they exist, um, making sure that, that transit points like East Africa, where there seems to be collection of ivory uh, into large shipments that then goes to Asia, that those um, that the, the customs and the policing of those ports and airports is, is extremely good. And then in Asia, it really comes down to um, reducing demand again. And, and this is particularly needed in, you know, in a situation where we do need to address that quite, quite seriously. But again, this, uh, this comes back to uh, we can't do it in isolation of each other. It all has to be done in a, in a coordinated effort across Africa to Asia and, and through, through Europe as well. Um, and North America. Just lastly, um, CITES, the, 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 the uh, conference, at the end of it, do you think that there will be hope very often with the conference of the parties as a sort of sense of we've gone round in circles, we haven't moved forward? What's your sense of hope there? Well, one, one very hopeful thing uh, that, that happened actually at the opening of the conference was the, in the opening address by the Thai Prime Minister to the conference, the Prime Minister announced that because of the, um, the crisis in elephant conservation and Thailand's um, unfortunate role as, as both a, um, a transit point for ivory but also as, an, as a, a major unregulated market for ivory, Thailand, uh, the Thai Prime Minister pledged to end the ivory trade in Thailand. Uh, now, this is, um, this is from senior government, obviously, at the prime ministerial level, and we are extremely encouraged by that and, um, and are very 
uh, willing to to work with the, the Thai government to um, to make this a, a reality. Because of course, it's you know it takes great courage to say that uh, that um, a country will end all ivory trade, that's international and uh, domestic ivory trade, and then it's a great deal of hard work to to make that happen. So that's encouraging. The other encouraging thing is that people are sensing the urgency in both the rhino and the elephant poaching crises and are talking increasingly about what does it take to address transnational organized crime. And that includes treating the whole issue more seriously with penalties, with political will, with international collaboration. So uh, we are hopeful that there will be some concrete, specific, measurable um, outcomes uh, for for the countries most implicated in the ivory trade. Uh, That appears to be a discussion that is going quite well in the COP. And we are also hopeful that we will make good progress in, in moving the, um, the issue of uh, the rhino poaching forward between South Africa and the other range states in Africa and the consumer markets in Asia, primarily Vietnam. Wonderful to be able to end on a note of hope. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we, um, we have high, high hopes and high expectations. Well, don't we all? Basically living in hope. Well, that was Elizabeth McClellan, and she's uh, from the World Wildlife Fund, and uh, she was uh, at the site, or is at the CITES conference that's happening right now in Bangkok. Incidentally, coming up this Saturday in Bangkok in Thailand, a ceremony is going to be taking place led by Buddhist leaders who will be praying for the souls of poached elephants and calling on Thai people to reject ivory in line with their Prime Minister's call. How lovely is that? We're talking of things coming up uh, this Saturday. If you were listening to Afternoon Talk with Ashraf Garda this afternoon, you might have heard them talking about the Generation Earth Youth Summit, focusing on the green economy, covering things like energy, water, waste, transport, architecture, and so on. And the idea being to stimulate the uh, the minds of new green thinkers, doers, and leaders of the future. And that's happening at the Santon Convention Centre on Saturday. And here in Cape Town, there's also a move towards greener thinking, in particular in areas where crime is better known perhaps than green. And tomorrow in Delft on the Cape Flats, there's a joint initiative between Sunrays in Flowers and the Townhouse Hotel. There's going to be a whole cluster of trees planted outside the Sunray Primary School, where I think that they also already have an indigenous garden. Well, to tell us a little bit more, we have on the line Jason Hanslew, who is right there in Delft. Hi, Jason. Hi. Nice to have you with us. Hi to all your listeners. Thank you. Thanks very much. So, Jason, what's happening tomorrow? They're going to be planting a whole forest of trees. Just tell us the story. Yeah, no, um, what's going to happen is, um, because of our partnership with um, uh, Food and Trees for Africa, mm-hmm. um, we, we've actually got a two-year um, partnership with them. where We'll be setting up a permaculture garden. Um, and as part of um, this planning towards this garden, we... Um, we're plotting two rows of windbreaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I would like to also say thanks to the Downers Hotel and Trees for Schools for, for coming out tomorrow and helping us with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's great that, uh, you know, so much can be done when you do it all together. But the permaculture garden, it's right outside the school. Does that mean that the, the, the learners will be able to help with it? What's the plan on that school? Yeah, sorry, it's not outside the school. It's on our school grounds. Okay. Um, it's just at the back of our school. It's actually at my classroom. Um, I'm a teacher at, at Sunray Primary School. Mm. Um, and then, um, 
yeah, we sort of have control over over the garden, but we also have um, the surrounding community who's living sort of on the periphery of the school. Yeah, who's also helping us out. Jason, are you a gardener yourself? I mean, do you, what do you know about permaculture? I'm a horticulturist. Okay. You're a horticulturist and a teacher. I'm a teacher as well, a grade four teacher. Wow, you're a valuable sort of a person. So do you teach the, do you, I mean, in your, in the break times or whatever, are you able to teach the children what this is all about? Well, I, I sort of incorporate it into my teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, most of um, what I, I sort of teach is, um, is, is within the garden. Um, uh, math skills can be sort of utilized, um, uh, measurement, um, time. Um, so, yeah, we, I sort of incorporate the garden and, and that into my teaching. Mm, it's really nice. And do the children enjoy it? Uh, they do. Mm. They really do. Mm, wonderful. They, I'm just thinking about the soil in Delft. What's it like? Because I think, if I, from what I understand, the whole idea of permaculture is that you sort of enrich the soil. Are you? What's your base material like? Yeah, at the moment we we sort of very sandy soil, and um, uh, our, our soil sort of uh, once you water it, sort of runs off. Um, but we do, um, thanks to some other sponsors, we we sort of have um, um, compost and manure and things to sort of work our soil. And the windbreaks you mentioned, rows of windbreaks. What will they be? Will it be like uh, bushes or? Yeah, trees? we we actually using the roof slip predictor because because of the growth, mm. um, the fast growth, um, and and we're having um, rows ten meter spacing um, between. The, the, the rows of trees, but we're also um, adding some other indigenous um, um, plants and shrubs like uh, chrysanthemoides. Mm-hmm. Um, we also, um, um, we in our third year of the Sandby Green program, uh, so we're sort of trying to keep everything indigenous, but also to try and um, grow some organic crops for our learners. You're going to be the pride of the district. Do you find that a lot of the uh, the parents and people in the surrounding community are they quite pleased with what you're doing? Yeah, we we actually um, one of the spin-offs of our our program with Sandby uh, was that the city of Cape Town um, gave us a piece of land in the area that is also going to be developed um, as under the, the umbrella of Sunraising Flowers project. Um, so that will be our our sort of our a move towards um, helping the community with organic produce and job creation. That's really nice. That really has been a combined effort. So, Sandy, that's South African National Botanical Institute. So everybody's come on board. Jason, very best of luck. I hope it all goes really well tomorrow and um, look forward to hearing how it's it's developed. Thanks very much. Lovely. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye. There you go, a horticulturalist and a teacher. Lucky kids there at Sunray Primary School where they're going to be planting uh, windbreaks and starting a permaculture garden. It's really, really nice stuff. Nice to know that uh, people are doing things together. Well, finally, on the subject of uh, simulating environmental thinking in young minds, as Jason's certainly doing there, jigsaw puzzles in the shape of rhinos. Well, there's a company called X extinct and they're producing a collection of 3d rhino jigsaw puzzles i have to just spell you extinct which is why i'm battling to say it it's spelt i k s 
T-I-N-G-K-T. So you try and say that. Extinct. Um, 3D, or, 3D jigsaw puzzles and the profits from which go directly into education and conservation. In fact, what they also do is they make larger-than-life rhinos as public arts installations, raising large-scale awareness, quite literally, and they also give educational workshops at schools. So we, it's, uh, Extinct is run by Scott and Nick Davies, who we have on the line. We've got Nick's on the line. Hi, Nick. Hi, Nancy. How are you doing? Excellent, excellent. Nice to hear about what you're doing. Great. Um, but I think that the actual jigsaw puzzles, the rhino jigsaw puzzles, are just part of what you're doing. Give us the background. Um, well, Nancy, as you said, like the, the whole project started from large-scale public art um, with a group of a group of madmen at Africa Burn wanting mm. to produce something that was... Um, thought-provoking and current, and we made these large, life-scale rhinos that was more about, like, being the opposite of of what we were experiencing on the, the news, which was devastation, but we wanted, we wanted to portray something that was more about the abundance of the possibilities of what we could do if we could change things. And this is, this has led into our puzzles, that have become more of what you would have seen on at the design and data mm. uh, that Scott, Scott and I are driving at the moment, which leads into education. So it's a, it's a it's a large collaborative platform that we're hoping that we can link education, conservation, public art, art and design, um, the man behind the computer, so every person, and um, and anybody else who is an activist or wanting to get involved in, in, in keeping our environment, what it is, or making it better. Okay, so it's not just about rhinos then. I mean, the rhino is the face of the project, but it's not only about rhinos. Yeah, absolutely. So hence the name extinct, which is the phonetical spelling for extinct. Um, so, like, we wanted to use the rhino, which is very much in our public face at the moment, mm. in being, becoming the voice for other animals that are struggling through struggling through this, like, they, yeah, they're about, they're on the verge of being extinct. Just go back to those, uh, the, you know, the, the sort of the brainchild that came out of Africa burns and you made these giant rhinos out of what? Pardon? Uh, oh, we made them out of cardboard, which was okay. fantastic. It was the Nita board, which is donated to us, which is great. Um, a lot of it to make larger than life cells. So they were more than two meters tall. It was amazing to put them up and really see them fit into the environment. And what was great, we arrived in a, a hailstorm, which was really key, really, in showing like the vulnerability of life, which mm. is what it's really about. And cardboard in a great desert space, and the fact that they stood was great, really amazing. Wow, that's really quite something. Yeah. Well, um, on a slightly more sort of a manageable scale, <laughs> the, the ones that I saw at the design, uh, the design in Darba were little wooden ones in rather neat boxes. Yeah. What What do you do with those exactly? Well, they um, they've actually emerged into uh, more functional project, uh, functional objects. So one is a magazine rack, and one is a pencil holder. So it's also it's also about pushing and showcasing the design aspects and how using innovative thought and problem solving you can make something functional that like the everyday person might want to have to associate themselves with the bush or with the environment. So like um, one of my bigger bigger thoughts is like even positive thought is a is a great collective. So even having that on your desktop or in your office can can trace you back to to sitting out having a gin and tonic in front of the sun, sunset, you know what I mean? 
watching rhinos. <laughs> I can hear how your mind's ticking over. <laughs> but, no. it, but it isn't just about the rhinos and the puzzles and the boxes no. that they go in. It's, it's more than that. And I think what you do is you actually go to schools and you talk to kids and explain these things to them. Just explain Ab- that part. Absolutely. So um, what we, we really want looking for is we're looking for more corporate people, corporate opportunities to invest into education. So we've been going to schools and uh, we started with Frank to Bear Art Center um, and we've developed a teacher's resource that shows how uh, one, one aspect of our understanding can link across the whole curriculum a little bit like what Jason's doing with permaculture which is which is fantastic I need to hook up with that guy yeah, he's amazing definitely, definitely. but um, so like just thinking about the rhino and even doing an artwork and a 3d puzzle which becomes like a a conceptual thought can link into math and into geography and and trying to create a personal relationship to to the to our environment from the school or city environment if that makes sense yeah well it is all about doing something isn't it yeah hold that thought we're talking to Nick Davies she's talking about the company extinct and uh, I'll give you the details on on that in just a minute I also want to know a little bit about the timber that they're making these rhinos out of stay with us this is the year of the government cadre a dedicated selfless public servant who strives to meet and exceed the expectations of the people to ensure improvement in our quality of service government is adopting a new public service charter together with other stakeholders this charter will entrench service delivery standards and lead to higher productivity. I'm Lindy Wesisulu, Minister of Public Service and Administration, and I'd like to invite you to submit your comments on this charter. This charter is about our service to you, and it will not be complete without your comment. The Ministry of Public Service and Administration, working towards a clean government accountable to the people. The National Department of Public Works, in partnership with the National Department of Social Development, will be hosting the expanded Public Works Social Sector Conference from the 5th to the 8th of March 2013 in the Northern Cape. Under the theme EPWP Social Sector United in Action Towards Socio-Economic Freedom, the four-day conference is aimed at reviewing the work of the sector, deliberate on sector strategic policy initiatives and come up with plans to intensify the creation of work opportunities. The expanded public works programme, So Many Lives Change for the Better. This is SAFM. And this is the Enviro Show, and in our green goodie feature, we're hearing all about extinct little rhino boxes, rhino uh, jigsaw puzzles, uh, pencil boxes, holders, etc., etc. And it's in our green goodie feature. And don't forget, if you've got a green goodie, whether it's a service or a product or whatever it may be, you can let us know. You can pop us an email at uh, enviro at safm.co.za or on our Facebook page, send us a message, The Enviro Show at uh, on SAFM. Nick Davy, so your little rhino goodies, your pencil holders, whatever they may be, are made out of what? Is it recyclable? Is it? Uh, it's made out of ply, so it's recycled wood oh, made out of okay. ply, yeah. Hmm. Okay. And so it's recycled wood? Well, like the MDF and the, as far as I know, I think it is, but otherwise it's plywood and MDF um, that is, that, that we're using, yes. Yeah, MD- and it's local, made in, made in Cape Town. Okay, MDS, what's that? It's a, it's a compacted, compressed wood that is put together, and that's, our, our smaller ones are laser cut out of that. Okay. Um, we might look at going back into ply with that, but we'll see, we'll see what suits us. 
It's been yet again. It's another sort of evolutionary project. What? Where did you start? I mean, what? What discipline do you follow normally when you're not making me runs? personally? Mm. <laughs> Um, I, I, I started as a photographer, <laughs> but um, I've moved into, a, a, I'm a conceptual artist now in Cape Town, and we're running everything out of um, a, a space called Woods, Woods in Side Street Studios in Woodstock, which is 48 Albert Road. And um, yeah, that's like, I'm looking at bigger pictures, things of linking people, think, things of linking the public into the creative realm and making people what I'm really interested in is about that moment where people start to interact with the environment mm. and I wonder how much there is of that because I think one of the people that one of the groups that you're collaborating with is the Wilderness Foundation yes that's what we've got some some work coming up with them in the in June which is great and we're currently working with the Wildlife Act Fund we are racing we've combined with Race for the Rhino with Scott um, Scott Irving and we will, you'll see us racing with red horns on our heads and <laughs> a crazy rhino bike, uh, the Argus. There's 50 of us raising funds oh. for a particular, a particular man to go and, go and um, track rhinos in a completely new territory. Oh, absolutely. I, yes, those, those big fat red rhino horns are yeah. going to be riding the Argus <laughs> doing that. And those go towards um, EWT. So it's a, this is definitely a big collaborative platform. We're hoping that more and more people can use this as a tool, either for social, corporate social responsibility or for raising funds for a specific corporate field or for pushing stuff into education. Yeah. You know, coming up in Cape Town very soon, as you possibly know, is the Infecting the City yes. uh, Festival, which I think is happening at the end of uh, next week. Yes. But it's almost like what you're doing is you're infecting people with the with the passion for what you're doing. Absolutely. Is that, is that the plan? Well, we hope so, eh? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It's, and there's something magnificent. Um, we've taken the rhinos down to the beach, and we hope to have them all, all over the city randomly, a little bit of gorilla, like just putting putting them up um, in the future, and it's really magnificent to see people's response to them. And it it just I just wish it could be real rhinos, mm. do you know what I mean, that we could walk amongst. Yeah, but absolutely. To see that that immense beauty and to understand the full scale of of these beautiful beasts is really something magnificent. And do I think for any an other animal that is under under threat. Mm. Yeah, well, as we heard earlier, 62% of elephants in Central Africa oh. have... It's just an unbelievable figure that the population there has reduced by 62%. Do you take orders? I mean, if a company would like a giant rhino in their lobby or reception area... <laughs> would, Absolutely. Can you rustle one up quickly? Tot totally. Of course we can. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, let me give out your website. Nick's lovely. Thank you very much for joining us. Very Thank you so much, Nancy. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Nick Davison, if you would like to know a little bit more, that's uh, www.ikstingt.org. Instinct and if you'd like to tell us about your green goodie here on the Enviro Show, please do enviro at safm.co.za.